2: behind the knife the surgery podcast where we take a behind the scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field
3: welcome back to the ucla endocrine surgery team we're excited to be back and recording our next episode I'm Rivka Chanoi. I'm a PGY-5 general surgery resident here at UCLA.
2: I'm David Sant. I'm the current UCLA endocrine surgery fellow. Michael Yeh, professor of surgery. I'm James Wu, endocrine surgeon at UCLA. Masha Levitz, endocrine surgeon at
1: UCLA. We start our first case at the UCLA
3: endocrine surgery clinic. So we saw a 38-year-old female with Hashimoto's thyroiditis who presented for an evaluation of a right thyroid nodule. This was first noticed five years ago, and the patient has no family history of endocrine disorders or thyroid cancer. We performed a bedside neck ultrasound, which showed a two centimeter right thyroid nodule. So I want to start by talking about the characteristics on ultrasound that we look for in these uh, thyroid nodules. Vivek, can you talk a little bit about what what characteristics are important here?
2: Sure. So there there are a variety of characteristics that Would make one more or less concerned about a thyroid nodule. Uh, They include the composition, Uh, for example, a purely cystic nodule may be less concerning uh, than other characteristics, the echogenicity, the shape, the characteristics of the margin, uh, as well as uh, calcifications or echogenic foci. And we have a couple of different classification systems to bring together all of these characteristics to better quantify. Uh, in a more quantitative or less quantity, quantitative way. Uh, we have the TIRADS system, as well as the ATA classification, and this helps risk stratify based on ultrasound features.
3: So based on those characteristics that we just talked about, how would you make the decision when or when not to biopsy one of these nodules?
2: Based on the gradation of the TIRADS classification, the more highly suspicious a nodule looks, for example, a TIRADS-5 nodule the smaller the size cutoff you would use for biopsying for example a thyroids 5 classified nodule you may want to biopsy as small as just over one centimeter uh, Tyroid 4 if it's greater than 1.5 centimeters you may biopsy it and for a thyroids 3 you would accept up to 2.5 centimeters before biopsying it
1: yeah and just as a comment you know we frequently talk about how there are so many thyroid nodules that are discovered and you know, most of them are not very aggressive, and we don't want to biopsy every little thing. I think this patient has a palpable thyroid nodule, which is a little bit different because their risk of malignancy is probably a little bit higher in a new palpable nodule versus just one discovered incidentally based on imaging. And I think in terms of the size cutoff, it's maybe easiest to remember anything less than one centimeter, even if it looks somewhat suspicious, as long as there are not any abnormal lymph nodes or really high risk characteristics like local invasion on the ultrasound, we don't want to biopsy it because it's probably not going to hurt the patient. And then over one centimeter, we start thinking about the specific imaging characteristics to to determine when to biopsy. For this patient,
3: We the characteristics of the nodule were that it was solid, hypoechoic. It had smooth borders and it had rim calcifications. So this patient did go ahead and get a biopsy. Um, And before I talk about the results of the biopsy, you know, I want to spend a couple minutes thinking about the Bethesda criteria for reporting thyroid cytopathology. I feel like this is one of those things that I always have to look up before starting an endocrine rotation. So I'm just really quickly going to go over the categories. And maybe we can spend a couple minutes talking about the nuances of it. There are six Bethesda classification categories. The first is non-diagnostic or unsatisfactory. And that just means that there weren't enough cells to be able to provide a diagnosis. The second is benign. The third is atypia of undetermined significance or follicular lesion of undetermined significance, which we'll talk about a bit more. The fifth is follicular neoplasm, or suspicious of follicular neoplasm, which likely would need surgery. And the sixth is suspicious for malignancy, which again would likely need surgery. Dr. Yeh, can you speak to how these criteria have changed over time and talk a little bit more about them?
0: All right. So those were the Bethesda categories that we just went through. I think they're fairly easy to remember. Uh, And the terminology, that the Bethesda system was developed because before that, it was kind of a wild west of terminology. You know, one pathologist would say one thing and a different pathologist would use different words. It's very hard to quantify. But what we we want, patients and physicians want, is we want a clear, uniform, or standardized terminology that translates into a certain risk of malignancy, a numeric risk of malignancy, right? So the first is Bethesda 1 is non-diagnostic. That means... technically failed biopsy. You did not collect enough cells. It cannot be evaluated. You have no information. So your probability of malignancy reverts to the base probability. And I don't think we've talked about that yet, but the base probability of malignancy is low, 6%. Right? So in the absence of information, you don't have a different post-test probability. Great. So let me talk about then Bethesda 2, or benign. And this is... So reassuring. And this has been kind of the reason that FNA for thyroid disease or solitary thyroid nodules has been so useful for 20 plus years uh, is because the negative predictive value of a cytologically benign FNA is so good. It pushes the risk of malignancy down to like less than 4%, right? So those people can all safely avoid surgery. And remember, a benign call, a Bethesda 2 call, is 70% of the total FNA. Calls. So all, you know, you start with 100 people in a room, 70% of them cross the room and are going to safely avoid surgery. All right, so next let's talk about the Bethesda three and four categories. Uh, we tend to consider these as a unit uh, because they are intermediate probabilities, right? So two closely related words, an indeterminate biopsy associated with an intermediate probability of malignancy ranges about 20, 10 to 40%. With the if, if we take that as a big pool, the overall risk of malignancy is around 20% because there are more Bethesda 3 calls than Bethesda 4 calls, right? Uh, then we have Bethesda categories 5 and 6, and those are the ones that are almost certainly malignant. So here at UCLA, uh, the risk of malignancy associated with the Bethesda 5 result, that's, that's called suspicious for malignancy, is 85% plus. And for Bethesda 6, 95% plus, so you must act as if those are malignant. I should say that the Bethesda classification system was revised in 2017. Why was it revised in 2017? It was to incorporate a new pathological term, NIFT-P. Now, this is very hard to to articulate other words in NIFT-P, but I'm going to try. Non-invasive follicular thyroid neoplasm with papillary-like nu- tr- nuclear features. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh so close. Uh, but you get the message. Uh, and what does that mean? So this entity was coined to reclassify a group of tumors that was previously called malignant, and and we wanted to reclassify, people wanted to, re- scientists wanted to reclassify it as non-malignant. Why was this? Um, So the previous category was encapsulated follicular variant papillary thyroid carcinoma. Everybody knows what papillary thyroid carcinoma is. Follicular variant papillary thyroid carcinoma, the slow pokes of papillary thyroid carcinoma, and the encapsulated on top of that is super, super slow pokes, right? So Nikiforov et al. in a 2016 JAMA oncology paper looked at this group of tumors in a multi-institutional study and found that none of them invaded and none of them metastasized. So they advocated changing the name from to basically delete the word cancer from the nomenclature. So NIFP lesions are currently uh, considered pre-malignant. So we should operate on NIFP. The upshot of this is when you do a needle biopsy and the ultimate histopathologic result is NIFP. That's considered a true positive because that patient has a pre-malignant lesion and needed surgery. All right. Uh, And so that was the rationale behind the 2017 revision of the Bethesda classification system for thyroid cytopathology,
4: because it it considers NIFP malignant. I I think one important point of the Bethesda system uh, is that even though it is made so that we have a standardized language between pathologists and surgeons, that it still depends on the pathologist and the pathologist in a single institution So the different institutions can have different malignancy rates of Bethesda 3 or 4 call. At UCLA, where we see a lot of thyroid nodules, our rate of malignancy is about 20% uh, for Bethesda 3 and 4 nodules. But at other institutions which may see less uh, thyroid nodules, the pathologists see less thyroid FNAs, they may try to hedge, and if some cells look a little bit abnormal... They may tend to lean into Bethesda 3-4 categories instead of calling it benign, lowering the overall malignancy rate.
3: This brings us back to our case. This lady's cytology was sent out for FNA, and it returned in that indeterminate category, which is atypia of undetermined significance. The next step here was that it was sent for genetic testing. Before sharing those results, I want to pause and think about when we send
1: these out for genetic testing. Yeah, so we just heard that the risk of malignancy in these indeterminate Bethesda 3 and 4 categories is between 10 to 40%. So in the past, we would either repeat an FNA for Bethesda 3 or do a lot of diagnostic lobectomies. And lot of these patients ended up having benign disease. So now we have molecular testing for these indeterminate categories to help us further refine the risk of malignancy. So molecular testing really is most useful for the diagnosis of indeterminate thyroid nodules, um, there are probably two kind of main molecular testing companies or technologies, which are Affirma GSC, um, which is an mRNA-based technology, and then ThyroSeq v3, which is DNA and RNA-based. And we have been doing a randomized trial at UCLA for the past several years comparing these two molecular testing technologies. Um, and what we found is that they have a pretty similar performance for our patients. Um, so, that the positive predictive value is about 50 to 60 percent. So, you go from having, let's say, Bethesda 3 result with a risk of cancer as low as maybe 10 or 15 percent. And if the molecular test is suspicious, then the risk of malignancy goes up to 50 or 60 percent. So, it's very useful for those categories.
3: Her genetic testing came back with a suspicious result. And specifically, she was BRAF mutation positive. So Vivek, I want to turn the conversation back to you. Let's pretend we're sitting in the clinic again with this patient going over her results. How do you counsel her on next steps and what treatment options does she have?
2: What I would counsel the patient is as follows. She has a two centimeter right thyroid nodule, initially determined to be of undetermined significance but now she has the BRAF V600E mutation, which is diagnostic. It's one of the few mutations that is diagnostic for papillary thyroid cancer. So this additional molecular testing is actually given as a significant additional piece of information. Given that she has a two centimeter cancer, she should undergo surgery, and at the very least, should undergo a lobectomy of the affected side. Now the question that remains is, how concerning is this mutation and should she be considering having a total thyroidectomy and potentially additional adjuvant treatment as well
1: so before we get to that, um, I just wanted to make a point about kind of molecular testing in general for these indeterminate thyroid nodules. It's really the minority of indeterminate nodules that will have a BRAF B600E mutation, only about 2%. Um, however, those, as Vivek mentioned, are diagnostic papillary thyroid cancer, which is very useful for the patient. Um, most times, if the molecular test has a suspicious result, it won't be diagnostic like this. It'll either be with a firma, you get just a suspicious result, positive predictive value about 50 to 60%. With IOSeq B3, you'll get the specific mutation, but it will often be, let's say, a RAS mutation identified um, where the risk of malignancy is you know maybe about one-third. An additional one-third will be NIFP. Um, so a lot of times the results from molecular testing are not as diagnostic as this.
4: The way I would think about a BRAF E600E mutation right now is that I know a lot of clinicians are concerned about finding this mutation in thyroid cancer, uh, and it's a unique situation because you normally don't get genetic testing on all thyroid cancers, but when we find it, uh, people think back to some publications that came out in JAMA by et Excel in 2013 showing that BRAF-mutated thyroid cancers, uh, patients with those are more likely to die of their thyroid cancer than patients with wild-type BRAF. However, uh, the mortality rate was still low of BRAF-mutated cancers, about 5%, compared to about 1% in wild type. And when they controlled for things like lymph node status, thyroidal extension, distant Mets, then just having the BRAF mutation out of itself was not an independent risk factor. That just means that patients who had this mutation are likely to show up with worse signs. But in this patient who only has an intrathyroidal 2-centimeter nodule, no signs of lymph nodes on ultrasound, no signs of extrathyroidal extension. I would treat her like any other 2-centimeter thyroid cancer until there's more data. I know that's a little bit controversial. So for her, I would recommend just a thyroid lobectomy and not take the added risk of doing a total thyroidectomy.
0: This is a great point. Uh, and... Just for the audience, uh, I want to point out that we are now straddling the line between diagnostic information and prognostic information, which is one of the coolest aspects of the molecular testing era. Um, backing up slightly, the different molecular tests yield different types of information, right? So the in order to wrap our heads around this, what, what makes it challenging is it's layer upon layer of conditional probabilities. We started with a base probability of 95% benign. Then about 25% of the cytopathology calls are indeterminate, Bethesda 3 and 4, and those are the ones we send molecular testing on. And of those, about half are molecular benign. Those people in the molecular testing era, 2012 and beyond, avoid surgery. So we're now we're dealing with the half of people who had an indeterminate Bethesda 3 or 4 FNA, who went on to have some sort of non-benign or, you know, funny-looking, positive, suspicious suspicious molecular testing result. The molecular testing results that are positive come in many different flavors and are associated with malignancy rates of sometimes 30 40 50%, and sometimes 99%. And Vivek pointed out that the BRAP V600E mutation is... Greater than ninety nine percent, lipid, right? Um, however, Doctor Olivet or Masha said, uh, "Why is it that we only see BRAF V six hundred E mutation in a small fraction of Bethesda three and four nodules? It's because almost all of the BRAF V six hundred E mutated tumors are Bethesda five and six, right? So that the average BRAF V six hundred E mutated tumor is solid, extremely hypoechoic." lots of internal punctate calcifications, and it's, it's malignant as hell from the first time you see it on ultrasound, right? So usually they will turn out Bethesda 6 and you got to operate. Uh, James made the excellent point. So now, uh, so Ming Zhao then at Hopkins, did most of the seminal work on the prog- BRAF V600E as a prognostic indicator in papillary thyroid carcinoma. And the first thing you got to know is 40% of papillary thyroid carcinomas have the mutation. Right, The prevalence is very high. Does the BRAF V600E mutation alone portend a worse prognosis? Eh, maybe a little, probably not. However, what we've learned since 2013 is it interacts with other things. Okay? BRAF V600E plus advanced age, bad prognosis. BRAF V600E plus male sex, worse prognosis, right? So I wouldn't use it, just as like you said, I wouldn't use it as a single predictor but it goes into your portfolio of other predictors. And another way I think of its it BRAV it, B-Rab V600E positivity correlates highly with tall cell variant papillary carcinoma. And a lot of people have heard of the tall cell variant, but I'm starting to think that the overlap is so great that it's the same thing. BRAV v V600E is likely the molecular way of saying tall cell variant. <laughs> Whether or not these people need more aggressive treatment, Again, I think I would consider multiple factors. And this person, the person in this case, could really go either way. You know, so I'd be interested to see what Vivek wants to do with this patient.
3: I also think it's important here to uh, remember that ultimately the decision is up to the patient. So it's really helpful to hear that either option could be reasonable depending on patient priorities and what what he or she wants in this case. All right, Vivek, so how, how will you counsel this patient? What do you recommend for her? And then we'll talk about what happened.
2: Right. So I think you made an important point that the patient's preference, especially in these cases where it's more of a judgment call, definitely factors in. What I think I would counsel her is that my recommendation would be to start with uh, a lobectomy and depending on the final pathology, we could, we could discuss further uh, doing completion.
1: And I just want to comment that we're really moving towards personalized medicine, you know, with kind of the combination of all of these results. We have the patient-specific tumor, molecular test results, their clinical factors, the ultrasound characteristics, so we can really put all of this together and, and counsel a patient very specifically with what are her risk factors and outcomes, depending on what treatment she chooses.
0: This is totally different from 2012. Right, 2012, everybody got a total thyroidectomy, everybody got RAI, yeah. and it was this like hammer that we just used to hit everything. Now it's very nuanced. Yeah. You know, uh, I remember the after the publication of the 2015 ATA guidelines, and I first saw a patient that could go either way, and there was this, this awkward moment where I was looking at Jen and our nurse practitioner, and she was looking at me, and we're like, what are we going to do now? <laughs> we have all these uh, potential decisions, and and Ricky you made the point that we're definitely in an era of shared decision-making, um, and lobectomy is kind of the initial operation of least regret. Uh, it's most likely to to not generate this system, or this situation where you may have over-operated and you can't put a functioning lobe back in. So, uh, my advice is: if you're not sure what operation to do, do a lobectomy. It's actually relatively easy to go back, um, uh, assuming that you found all the lymph nodes on your initial ultrasound. Uh, so, something important for what we teach our residents all the time is really do a good lymph node exam on your ultrasound, that can that can force the decision, right? Because if you see if a plump lymph node, that patient's getting a total thyroidectomy with a neck dissection. So there used to be just one operation. Uh, most everyone got a total thyroidectomy, total thyroidectomy. Now it's lobectomy, total thyroidectomy, total thyroidectomy with neck dissection, and usually in the third category, most people get radioactive iodine. And in the past 15 years, UCLA has been on this journey where we're really de-escalating things. When I first came here, of people got RAI and total thyroidectomies for even the tiniest cancers. And now we use radioactive iodine for only a fourth of people.
3: And something I've learned too, going back to this concept where lobectomy is the path of least regret, is this idea of doing a lobectomy, sending it for a UCLA rush pathology, and then being able to bring back the patient within that window where reoperation is not as hard as it can be down the road.
0: Yeah, we're so lucky. I have to say, so we're in a like fat city with respect to pathology, mm-hmm. right? So, our th- cytopathologists perform so well, they're so consistent, they're, they actually often will consult one another. And then, furthermore, the fact that we can get a rush permanent where we assess invasion and all those things, uh, within typically about 18 hours of completing a lobectomy that's not true everywhere, you know. Look, you're making the point that if we get that. Um, rush permanent so quickly we can bring that patient back within even just a few days often less than eight days for a completion when there isn't that much scar tissue but we've got to be mindful that not everybody has such resources we're lucky
3: and it's it's a multidisciplinary sport here you know this is involving the pathologist and then also administrative folk too helping get that scheduled it involves a lot of people so this patient's pathology came back as classic papillary thyroid carcinoma, 2.1 centimeters, no lymphovascular invasion with clear margins. Is this patient cured of her cancer? What else does she need next? And I should mention that she did receive a total
1: thyroidectomy. So I would say this patient, I mean, the cancer has clearly been removed. The patient has undergone a total thyroidectomy. You did your lymph node mapping evaluation on ultrasound prior to surgery. You didn't see any abnormal lymph nodes. You looked again in the central neck during the surgery. You didn't see any abnormal lymph nodes. I think this patient probably is done with treatment for now, and what we tend to do in this case is we check tumor markers at kind of an early time point, you know, about four to six weeks after surgery, Um, and if the thyroglobulin is already very low at that point, there's clearly no evidence of any additional disease. Um, This patient probably could be observed. That's a
0: great point. Is one of the newest things, the literature on this topic is, is one of the newest things in all thyroid cancer management. So, thyroglobulin can be expected after a total thyroidectomy, the serum thyroglobulin level can be expected to disappear at about day 25. By that time, most of our patients are taking thyroid hormone, so the TSH is suppressed at less than one typically. So, if the suppressed thyroglobulin level is less than 0.1, that patient's very likely cured, very likely can be spared radioactive iodine, um, really high negative predictive value. If it's above 0.1, or let's say between 0.1 and 1 suppressed, let's imagine, maybe they'll need radioactive iodine and maybe not. It's If it's much above that, then likely there's still residual disease. And there are some groups in Europe looking at those Mid that middle ground, point 0.1 to 1, and finding if you just wait like a year, a lot of them will revert to undetectable thyroglobulin and can also be spared radioactive iodine. But Masha makes the great point that that early post-op thyroglobulin is a fabulous, very sensitive indicator of the completeness of your resection. And I look at that on all of my patients. I feel like that's my report card.
4: And I think that this concept has really been pushed forward by Michael Tuttle, a really great endocrinologist at Memorial, where he's really made a classification scheme for response to initial therapy. And what they've shown is that by looking at factors like the ultrasound or other imaging and thyroglobulin, that the response to initial therapy actually better predicts your risk of recurrence than what your initial pathology and presentation showed. So even if you were characterized as intermediate or high risk initially, if your response to therapy is excellent, then you actually drop into the lower risk category. And so getting that first data point back before you decide on further treatment is really important. Another point is that this uh, young woman, she had Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Oftentimes, those patients will have thyroglobulin antibodies, and that will make it so that you can't follow serum thyroglobulin even after a total thyroidectomy. But we've also learned that uh, even though you can't follow thyroglobulin, you can actually follow the titer of the thyroglobulin antibodies. And so you can actually, if the antibody titer is falling and continues to fall after a total thyroidectomy, that's a sign that uh, things are going well and rising thyroglobulin antibody titers is a sign of potential recurrence to guide your therapy later.
1: Now, I think we're sort of all on the same page about this young woman with a small two-centimeter intrathyroidal nodule no lymph nodes involved, probably fairly low risk, even with the BRAF V600E mutation. Um, You know, just looking at the current American Thyroid Association guidelines from 2015, which have this really nice risk stratification system based on the pathology, and they classify the tumor into low, intermediate, or high risk. Um, And the risks are, what is the patient's risk of recurrence? And a patient with it papillary thyroid cancer less than four centimeters with a BRAF V600E mutation is actually technically in the intermediate risk category (laughs) with a quoted risk of recurrence of up to 10%. Now, I think um, the guidelines, first of all, are currently being revised. um, And I'm not sure that's really looking at all the patient's clinical factors. As we heard, a young woman is probably different than an older man uh, with this BRAF V600E interaction. But I just say that because there probably is some opposing point of view that, that might want to treat this patient a little bit more aggressively.
4: And going back to you know, what Rivka said about patient preferences, um, I think that exactly, there's so many different inputs on uh, what the right treatment is and there's so many answers that could be the right answer. There was an interesting study um, recently looked at patient counseling and what they felt like their input was into whether they got radioactive iodine or not and the majority of patients actually felt like they had almost no say in whether they got radioactive iodine and this was only published a few years ago. So I think that really emphasizes that now in this new world where almost anything goes, uh, that we really should refocus on what the patient wants just like Ruka said.
0: So a couple minutes ago James mentioned the concept of dynamic risk stratification. I don't know if Everybody caught that because he said it pretty fast. He was talking briefly about Michael Tuttle. And this concept, uh, that's, you know, I would have to say in all of the surgical fields, it's most advanced in thyroid cancer than compared to almost any other malignancy. A lot of cancers, uh, we just stage TNM classification, AJCC, you get a prognosis, right? But if you think about it, that's a snapshot taken at the time the pathologist looks at your tumor. And then it is static and doesn't evolve. Uh, You know, both Masha and James have raised the point that what about all the data that comes after the operation? We've got fibroglobulins that are in the basement. We've got scans (laughs) that are negative. We've got ultrasounds that are... Those are all... They should be incorporated into what we tell the patient about their risk of recurrence, right? So this concept of dynamic risk stratification, we see all our patients, thyroid cancer patients, a year later. They may have walked into the door, you know, as an intermediate risk of a recurrence patient with a BRAF positive uh, BRAF V six hundred mutation, and you're needing a total thyroidectomy and a big tumor. But after one year, if their thyroglobulins are all undetectable and their ultrasounds are all negative, they're no longer that same patient. Their risk of recurrence re-stratifies down, right? So I remember a couple of years ago, so maybe 2014, I was in a I was in a taxi with Michael Tuttle. And, and at that time, he, this idea of dynamic risk stratification was rolling around in his head and it was rolling around in mine. And I was sitting in the front seat of the taxi and he was talking about this. And I said, yeah, I have all these patients coming in and they've got negative thyroglobulins, they've got negative ultrasounds. And everybody wants to know on the day they get diagnosed with cancer, look into my future. Give me the crystal ball. What's my future? And I'm like, you know, I can't tell you today. Today, what we have is a blurry photograph. And as the next year goes on, we're going to get more and more data, and that photograph will come into sharper and sharper focus. I said, that is what I am telling my patients. And Mike total ruthlessly stole my idea. (laughs) He, He then went home and told his photographer daughter to take three pictures of a flower. One very blurry, one more uh, uh, in focus and one sharply in focus and then he made this slide and, and to his credit he calls the slide the focus of yay uh, and he went around and showed this slide all over the world um, and because the, the blurry photograph is the perfect metaphor for a dynamic risk stratification uh, which is one of a really one of the coolest aspects I think of thyroid cancer management that makes it diff- different from other types of cancers we manage. It was highly intuitive.
1: I think we should summarize. So, for our <laughs> residents, <laughs> uh, for our oh, residents who are listening, they're like, okay. So, what, what what is the board answer um, for a patient with a thyroid cancer? I think a re- reasonable board answer would be: if you have a papillary thyroid microcarcinoma less than one centimeter in size, if you're going to operate, definitely lobectomy. If you have an aggressive thyroid cancer, or more than four centimeters in size, there's local invasion, there's gross extrathyroidal extension, there are positive lymph nodes, you're going to do a total thyroidectomy with or without a lymph node dissection, depending on where the abnormal lymph nodes are. And anything in between an intrathyroidal nodule between one to four centimeters in size, we can consider lobectomy or total thyroidectomy. And those are both reasonable board answers, as long as you can kind of vocalize what your thought process is one way or another. We're now going to move
3: on to our second case. In this case, we still have a two centimeter thyroid nodule, but this time FNA biopsy performed reveals medullary thyroid carcinoma. So as soon as I think about medullary thyroid cancer, the first thing that pops into my head is the genetic syndromes. I want to spend a quick minute here reviewing these syndromes. Medullary thyroid cancer falls into MEN-2 syndromes. 2A is the parathyroid hyperplasia, medullary thyroid cancer, and pheochromocytomas. MEN-2B is the mucosal neuromas with the uh, morphinoid body habitus, medullary thyroid carcinoma, and the pheochromocytoma. And then our last quick point of review is that MEN-1 is the pituitary adenomas, parathyroid hyperplasia, and pancreatic tumors. For this patient with medullary thyroid cancer, Vivek, what? How do our treatment recommendations change for this patient? And how do we? Is there any data that can guide us in making these recommendations?
2: There are a few options for this patient. First, we would definitely want to make sure we're working up any other potential parts of any of these syndromes. We can talk about potential genetic testing, but for the actual surgical options, what we would recommend for this patient with medullary thyroid cancer in a unilateral nodule is a total thyroidectomy. And depending on the calcitonin level, there should be a discussion on whether or not the patient undergoes a bilateral central neck dissection and or potentially a lateral neck dissection. There's certainly, for a very, very low calcitonin level, one can consider just doing a total thyroidectomy. For some sort of intermediate calcitonin level, a central neck dissection might be very reasonable. And for a very high calcitonin level, one should start thinking about performing a metastatic workup as well as considering a lateral neck dissection.
1: Yeah, so the typical standard operation for a medullary thyroid cancer is going to be a total thyroidectomy with a central neck dissection. And then it really depends, as Abit mentioned, on what the calcitonin level is and what the ultrasound findings are. You know, if you have a high calcitonin level, um, you should have a high suspicion of lymph node metastatic disease. Um, And then if you have a really high calcitonin level, over 400, then we should think about the possibility of distant metastatic disease and actually do staging imaging um, prior to the surgery.
3: What about a situation where you do have a patient with one of these syndromes and they have both a medullary thyroid cancer and uh, parathyroid hyperplasia? How would you surgically manage one of these patients?
0: That's a good question. That's a reasonably uncommon uh, scenario. Uh, I just want to just to review. Uh, if you have a patient... So just going back a little. If you have a almost all medullary thyroid carcinomas should be recognized on FNA. They have unique cytologic features, and the presence of uh, amyloid calcitonin can be uh, readily distinguished. Next is... The pre-op calcitonin level, really important. Um, I tend to look at it's either less than 500 or greater than 500. If it's less than 500, disease probably in the neck, patient's probably curable. Calcitonin pre-op greater than 500, the disease is out of the neck. In 80% plus of the cases, you're probably not going to cure that patient. Uh, Going back to your question, Rivka, about what if there's concurrent hyperparathyroidism, that's true about 30 to 40% of the time. Uh, if your patient has medullary thyroid carcinoma, remember that 25% of all medullary thyroid carcinoma cases are familial. And the first thing to do, in my opinion, is test the urine. Uh, and this has been a famous board's question for generations now that you will fail if you don't run the urine and met- metanephrines and catecholamines because you have a real afio. Uh That's the first thing you have to do. And you know, any anesthesiologist worth his or her salt is, will not will refuse to put the patient to anesthesia unless you have, unless you have uh, the urine meta in catecholamines. So I would say that's that's sort of a bigger problem in terms of how to initially manage these patients. If you look at the ATA medullary thyroid carcinoma guidelines, the pre op calcitonin matters and RET testing, syndromic RET testing, germline RET testing is actually very early in the protocol. I'm going to say that I I don't always do that because it takes a little while to come back. Um, uh, So, uh, again, I I base a lot on the pre-op calcitonin in terms of how much staging I want to do. But almost like no matter what sort of scans you get up front, almost always you're going to do a neck operation. So, uh, really, it's make sure the patient doesn't have a pheo and then usually operate on the neck after that.
1: Yeah, and then just going back to this question of let's say they have MEN2A and they also have hyperparathyroidism. I think one of the biggest things to think about is avoiding hypoparathyroidism. You're doing a combined neck operation, you're doing maybe a bilateral central neck dissection. This is a very high risk for permanent hypoparathyroidism which would really uh, impede this patient's quality of life. So there are a couple of options you could potentially only remove the large parathyroid glands. You could do a total parathyroidectomy with a forearm transplant because in this case you have a fairly you know, higher chance that there's going to be a recurrence of the hypoparathyroidism or that you might have to go back into the neck because the medullary thyroid cancer has recurred. So it's nice to have a little parathyroid tissue transplanted into the forearm where you're not going to go back to. So, you know, you could do a subtotal parathyroidectomy. There are a couple of different surgical options, but I think the priority is avoiding hypoparathyroidism.
4: The most fun part of putting the parathyroid tissue back into the arm is that if it comes back later, you can put a blood pressure cuff on that arm and inflate it to isolate the blood there, and you can draw blood from both arms, and if it's coming high from the arm you've isolated, then it's coming from the forearm, or if it's coming back in the neck, it's coming from the other arm, so you know which way to go. We're doing that this
0: week, dude. I've got a (laughs)
1: forearm parathyroid this
4: week. It's the most fun thing, (laughs)
1: The other sort of important part to think about with the RET testing is the genotype-phenotype correlations. Um, so, the RET mutations... I said so. <laughs>
3: <That's amazing.
1: laughs> the RET mutations are not categorized based on risk category. So, the highest risk categories, which um, go into the MEN2B category, means that a patient could be diagnosed at a very young age with medullary thyroid cancer. So those patients then, or family members, should actually undergo prophylactic thyroidectomy at less than one year of age. And then most other patients, um, they can undergo a prophylactic thyroidectomy at a later age, depending on if they have a high or intermediate risk mutation. So for the intermediate risk, bread mutations for the family members, We can actually do yearly calcitonin and ultrasound screening and delay the thyroidectomy for the time when the disease is first just starting to appear. I think that the red mutations, they don't specifically confer a more aggressive um, sort of disease course, but an earlier disease course. So if we know about those, we could time our treatment accordingly.
4: There's a really nice table you can reference in the ATA guidelines on thyroid cancer in 2015 that has a table of all of the ret mutations and their associated risk level.
0: Practically speaking, there, there are only two mutations you need to know. Uh, so uh, MEN1, MEN2, actually very different. Right? Remember, MEN2 it's a receptor, the gene, the RET tyrosine kinase. It's a surface molecule that dimerizes when it activates. Uh, It's a gain-of-function mutation. It's a growth signal, right? Codon 634 (laughs) mutation, so common. Accounts for most of MEN2A. Um, It's sort of like the middle of the molecule, the extracellular portion of the molecule. And yeah, everybody gets medullary thyroid carcinoma because that's what unifies all of MEN2, medullary thyroid carcinoma. But it's weird. The codon 634 MEN2A is not that severe. Sometimes you find them in their 50s, 60s, you know, uh, the, the sporadic medullary carcinomas are worse than the codon 64, 634-MEN-2A medullary thyroid carcinomas. The other one, one that should scare you, 918, codon 918 mutation, intracellular tyrosine kinase domain, and that tyrosine kinase is just churning, it's just churning down, uh, downstream intracellular growth signals. Uh, those people have medullary carcinoma before the age of one. And wow. and they have they tend to have MEN2B, B for bad, right? So MEN2B is the weird one where they have this horrible medullary carcinoma and they look weird. They have morphinoid habitus and all this weird thing. And, you know, when you meet a patient with MEN2B and a codon 918 mutation, when you meet them, they're probably going to die. Hmm. If you meet them as an... And they're, like, walking around, right? Because... The only person you can save is that person's kid uh, so really important genotype phenotype correlation the entire spectrum of disease from really indolent disease to super scary disease like basically when
4: you're a baby that's already growing in your neck that's my halloween costume 918. Woo! <laughs> that's terrifying breaks my neck
1: all right a summary for our medullary thyroid cancer case When you have a patient who has had a thyroid nodule and the biopsy is medullary thyroid cancer, number one, rule out uh, uh, the other parts of a potential genetic syndrome, most importantly, a pheochromocytoma before taking that patient to the operating room. Then when we go ahead and think about the surgery, we wanna think about what the pre-op calcitonin is, and then also what the ultrasound looks like to identify any abnormal lymph nodes to help guide the extent of surgery. Most commonly, you're going to do a total thyroidectomy with a central neck dissection, unless the pre calcitonin is very low, like less than 40. And then you're going to think about a lymph node dissection, depending on what lymph nodes are involved based on the ultrasound findings. There are some people that advocate doing a prophylactic, even lateral neck dissection if the pre calcitonin is very high. But I would say a lot of centers, including ours, really don't do that. And we decide on the extent of lymph node dissection based on the imaging findings. Um, And then, um, you know, the RET mutation matters in terms of what age you expect the patient may develop their disease. So it's really helpful for other family members to decide uh, what age they might need a prophylactic thyroidectomy.
3: The third case is a 65-year-old male who presents into clinic with a massive neck mass that has been rapidly enlarging over the past two months. This patient has no other family history of endocrine disease. On his CT scan, there's a mass effect on the upper airway of this mass with rightward deviation of the trachea. On your physical exam, the patient is slightly tachypneic, but at the moment, he's breathing comfortably and there's no active strider. He does report that he cannot lie flat at night because of shortness of breath. My initial concern here is his respiratory status. James, can you talk about how to manage this, specifically whether or not this is a patient you would consider a trachon?
4: Absolutely. When a patient presents with a massive neck mass, and our thoughts really go to either a massive goiter or a really terrible cancer. I think the key in this case is that it's rapidly grown over two months, a really short amount of time. We've seen many patients with massive goiters, and um, though they can cause compressive symptoms and be uncomfortable, in general, they're not going to cause. Uh, airway compromise the majority of cases. In this case, my major concern would be an anaplastic uh, thyroid carcinoma. So the first step is to get the diagnosis. So I would want uh, uh, to get a fine needle aspiration or a needle biopsy. And because I already have this presumption that it could be anaplastic thyroid cancer, I would want them to also rush genetic testing um, to see if these patients are eligible for targeted therapy. And time is of really of the essence in these types of patients. And so doing that on the first biopsy is important.
1: James, can you just go over what is your differential diagnosis in this area?
4: Absolutely. I think the differential would be a massive thyroid goiter that has had a infarct and has bled into it, which can cause people to present with a sudden enlargement, a poorly differentiated or anaplastic thyroid cancer. Uh, Certainly any other type of thyroid cancers could also uh, rapidly grow in in two months, but that is unlikely. Uh, And then you have to think about anything else that could occur in the neck. So any head and neck, squamous cell cancers, lymphoma, uh, really starting to think outside the box. Uh, I think those are usually settled pretty easily just by doing your thyroid ultrasound, physical exam, all the things that we normally do as part of our initial workup. Uh, But of course, as a part of any good mock scenario, ABCs is most important, and we really have to address this patient's airway, especially since they're telling us that they're having trouble breathing. Now... You should first, on your physical exam, see if the patient is using their accessory muscles, if they look like they are uh, retracting a lot when they breathe, and if they're working really hard. If they seem like they're working hard and they're going to tire out, then that person needs to go from your clinic to the ED and be admitted for observation. Um, if otherwise they don't have any strider, uh, they're breathing relatively comfortably, Uh, and without a lot of work, then I think the first step is to have a good conversation about their goals of care. Uh, Because if they have poorly differentiated anaplastic thyroid cancer, the mean survival of those is less than six months. And the treatments uh, usually aren't very effective. And I think this is controversial, but uh, the... Wisdom of whether to do a tracheostomy is difficult because if you place a tracheostomy in a patient who is otherwise well, you're going to rob them of their voice. You may impair their ability to swallow. You may impair their ability to be at home with their loved ones and really take away a short amount of time and quality of life that they have left. So before doing something like that, I think a good goals of care discussion Uh, is really important to have with the patient and setting realistic expectations about what they can expect. In the meantime, uh, there are other interventions you can do, uh, having them sleep upright. If they have to be admitted, giving them supplemental oxygen uh, or Heliox, Helium plus oxygen, make people feel like they uh, have an easier time with the airway or giving them steroids.
3: And I remember when we had a case like this, you talked a little bit about uh, tumor invasion two of the tracheostomy. Can you uh, speak to that?
4: Uh, another uh, possible consequence is that the if you place a tracheostomy, the tumor tank can then uh, invade uh, where you created the surgical wound and start to grow out of the neck or start to actually grow into where the tracheostomy was, uh, both of which are also really tough on uh, patients as well.
3: The patient in this case did undergo FNA of, of the neck mass, and it, it revealed an anaplastic thyroid cancer. What Here, what are the, what are the treatment options for this patient?
4: So uh, now that we've confirmed that it's anaplastic thyroid cancer, the most important expert information we need to get is genetic testing. And this is really new, and I, I think in many ways exciting for the treatment of this uh, otherwise very untreatable disease where there is, if the cancer has a BRAF mutation, which is present in about a third of these anaplastic thyroid cancers, then they can be given targeted therapy, uh, debrafinib and trimetinib. And that's a BRAF inhibitor, inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor, which is just downstream of BRAF. And when given the combination of these targeted therapies, um, MD Anderson published their first case series of this recently of only six patients. And they gave it to people who had that uh, biopsy proven anaplastic thyroid cancer, uh, all of the six uh, were able to undergo complete surgical resection. Uh, when they looked at the hist pathology, it showed high pathologic response rates, and the six month and one year survival was 183%, which is remarkable for anaplastic thyroid cancer. So I think that uh, if the patient is fortunate enough uh, to have a BRAF mutation, then we should be trying to get them these target therapies as quickly as possible. Uh, and uh, following their response, once we feel like their treatment effect has reached its peak, we should take them to surgery to take it as much as we can. And that will uh, buy the patient as much time as we possibly can give them.
1: That this really has been a game changer for these patients with anaplastic thyroid cancer that do not respond to cytotoxic chemotherapy or primary radiation. You know, if you debulk them, which we do sometimes, but you leave gross disease behind, it can recur very quickly and aggressively. Um, So I think this is really sort of the first treatment that has shown, you know, true results for these patients. Um, It's very promising.
0: It's one of the been one of the best things that have had that has happened in. You know, let's be honest. We are in the molecular era of treatment for thyroid cancer, and so many other things. we borrowed this, this therapy was borrowed from the melanoma literature. Uh, and I got it. There's a little UCLA pride here because our melanoma research unit headed by Tony Rebus is just such a dynamo. Uh, we, we benefit collaterally from this. Um, is a direct inhibitor of the B, BRAF, uh, 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 mutation. Um, if you give that in isolation, there is rapid escape through downstream uh, uh, activation of MAP kinase. uh, kinase. So that's why you have to give both uh, uh, to prevent that rapid escape.
1: The summary for anaplastic thyroid cancer is that it is very, very rare, thankfully. It is very aggressive with a median survival of less than six months. Um, We have to think about the airway when the patients present and what we might need to do to protect the airway. We need to think about distant metastatic disease. We didn't mention this, but a high number of patients present already with distant metastatic disease. So these are the patients that we wanna get a pre-op PET scan um, just to know what we're dealing with. All of these patients are considered stage four by the American Thyroid Association because of how aggressive the disease is. So we need to think about goals of care, really disclose the prognosis so the patients can be involved in their decision-making. Test for BRAF V six hundred E mutation very early to see if they're a candidate for the targeted therapy, and then have the possibility of surgery, um, maybe post-operative external beam radiation, um, as also potential treatment options.
3: And as an overall summary, what I what I hope we've demonstrated is how important in in thyroid cancer the the genetic profiling. Kind of the microbiology of the cancer can be to determine what each of these patients need. These were patients who the first two had the same size tumor and and the recommendations were vastly different. And then this third patient still had thyroid cancer, but again, so vastly different in what we have to think about and their treatment. So to wrap up, the question that I'll leave is where is where is genetic testing for thyroid cancer headed, and where do you all think? Um, How do you think you'll be using it 15, 20 years from now?
1: You know, right now, the role of genetic testing still is primarily for the diagnosis of indeterminate thyroid nodules to decide which patients can be observed and which patients need surgery. But I think in the future, the prognostic information will be much more important. And, uh, you know, a lot of this is just the cost of the testing. But as the cost would hopefully come down over time, you know, I think it'll help us decide which patient's can just have active surveillance, don't need any surgery at all, which patients need a lobectomy versus a total thyroidectomy, which patients need reactivide and ablation, um, really help to guide our specific treatment for individual patients in the future.
4: Exactly. I mean, in in all cancer care, biology is king, and having more access to more genetic information just gives us a more focused picture uh, of Mm -hmm. what that um, biology is going to be. Uh, So I think that there's only going to be more and more of a role to tell us both uh, exactly what is in these thyroid nodules and how to treat them. I think it's going to be routine. You know, right now we only get
0: molecular testing on at most 25% of thyroid nodules, right, based on Bethesda category. And I should note that we are in this, like, special little bubble here where everybody gets routine molecular testing. And we've made that so at UCLA partially because we want to study everybody in a uniform fashion. In most places in the United States, then the number one thing that happens is no molecular testing for indeterminate thyroid nodules. It's expensive, you know? Um, and then there are many other institutions where the molecular testing is used selectively. I really think we're, we're headed as the cost comes down, we're headed toward universal molecular testing, uh, for these. And, uh, how often is it going to allow us to customize an op, uh, ther- initial therapy for Bethesda five and six nodules? I think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see added value from that. And I think that will unfold in the next two, three years.
4: Until next
2: time. <laughs> <laughs> dominate the day. <laughs> yes, so dominate the day. <laughs> Until next time, dominate the day. Yeah. Until next time, dominate the day.